Well, we are in a new year. I don't know about you. Um, hopefully you have had a, a good uh, new year, kind of this marathon from Thanksgiving until uh, yesterday. I know for me, you know, these are my truth jeans is what I call them. Um, none of that stretchy stuff. This is real denim. And so, you know, I used to wear the stretchy stuff, but it would lie to me a lot. Um, because the truth is, I'm about one cookie away from having to let my belt out about two notches. Um, that's how my Thanksgiving to New Year's Day is gone. So hopefully you've enjoyed yours. Um, but yeah, get you a pair of truth jeans. They will not lie to you. Um, we are going to be in, in Judges next week. Ken's going to jump back in. But part of that that we have talked through, Shane uh, went through Nehemiah, and we're going to talk today through uh, Psalm 51, and how this fits with judges. If you remember back, and you'll remember as we jump back in, you know, the people would cry out, and they would beg for a judge, and, and God would send them a judge, and then they would just turn back to their sin, and they just, that's the cycle um, over and over and over again, and so what Shane talked about, what I'm going to talk about today is um, what true repentance looks like versus what we see the people go through in the book of Judges. And really to set up Psalm 51, this is a psalm that David wrote, but to set that up, you really have to go back to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And I'll just briefly tell the story, but it's the the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah. Um, And as you know, all the men were off at war when the kings were also supposed to be off at war, but yet David was at home. Now that's that's a whole nother sermon. But David was at home. He sees Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop. He sends for her. He brings her up. He sleeps with her. He finds out that she's pregnant. And so once he finds out that she's pregnant, he realizes he's got to do something. So he sends for Uriah, her husband, who's one of his main guys. He sends for him, brings him home from the battle. And he says, hey, take a break. Go be with your wife. Take time off from the the war, you know, and enjoy your wife and enjoy being home. And so what happens is that night he goes and, as you recall the story, he sleeps on the doorstep. He won't go in. And David finds out about it. He said, what what are you doing? He said, I'm not going to do that. Not while my men are at battle am I going to come home and enjoy life back here. And so David's now he's really worried because he's like, I need him to sleep with his wife so it looks like it's his child. And so he conjures up this plan. Well, we'll just, we're going to feast and we're going to eat and we're going to drink a lot. And he gets him drunk and he sends him back down to his house. And he's thinking, well, surely this will happen. Again, he does the same thing. He doesn't go in. And David at this point realizes, well, now I've really got to do something to cover this up, to cover up the sin of adultery. So he sends Uriah back to the battle and sends a note with him, says, hey, put him on the front lines. And once he's up on the front where the fiercest fighting is going on, draw back the troops And that's what happens, and Uriah is killed or murdered, if you really want to look at it like that. So now David has committed adultery. He has murdered or had killed one of his main men in order to cover up the sin of adultery. And then all this has happened, and then Nathan the prophet comes in to talk with him. And this is 2 Samuel chapter 12, and this is in the weekly reading, and you can read it this week. But Nathan the prophet comes in, and he comes in, he starts telling this story about these two men, and one man that's wrong, this other man, and David just burns with righteous anger, so he believes. And he says, who is this? Tell me who this is. 
And he says, you're the man. You're the man. And that is where we are when David writes this psalm. So this is not just a psalm written when someone, you know, hit their thumb with a hammer, said a word they shouldn't have, and went, oh, I'm going to write this psalm about being repentant. No, this is David after committing adultery, after having her husband murdered, and truthfully, going back and just living life and covering it all up because of the leader and the king that he was until he was found out by Nathan, the prophet, and found out by God. So this is where we are when he begins to repent and to cry out to God. Here's what it says in Psalm 51, 1 through 2. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your loyal love, because of your great compassion. Wipe away my rebellious acts. Wash away my wrongdoing. Cleanse me of my sin. Have mercy on me, God, as he cries out. Similar to the Israelites and judges, have mercy on me. Have grace on me, Lord, because of your loyal love. Notice there's two things that he talks about where he's looking at God's character because of your loyal love, because of your great compassion. Because David knows. David has been chosen to be king. He's been blessed. He's seen all the stuff with he and Saul. I mean, he knows who God is. He says, because of your loyal love, because of this covenant relationship that we share, because of your great compassion, or another word for that is tender mercies, because of your tender mercies, your loyal love, this covenant relationship, Lord, please, as he cries out because of what he's done and the atrocities that he's committed. And he goes on and he talks about his sin in three ways. He uses three different words to talk about it. Wipe away, wash away, cleanse me. And then wipe away my rebellious acts, wash away my wrongdoing, cleanse me of my sin. You know, the idea of wipe away is, uh, is like to blot out. Um, you know, we think about it, you know, you're, you're blotting out some ink that you spilled on something. To, uh, another way to think about it is, is to scrape away, to make clean, like a clean slate. So he's begging God as he's crying out, scrape away my rebellious acts. Another word for that is transgressions which means sin upon sin. Not just sin, but sin upon sin. So he says, scrape away my transgressions. And then he says, wash away. You know, this idea of, of, of cleaning clothes, wash away. Literally, it means to scrub out or to beat out the dirt. Wash away my wrongdoing. Or another word for that is iniquities. My immoral failure, my move from the standard of what God has. He's crying out, wash away. Clean me of that. And then he says, finally, cleanse me, which is more of a, a purification term, a ritual uh, of purification. Cleanse me of my sin, this idea of missing the mark. And as he's walking through all of these, David's doing this because he wants everything to be covered. As he is crying out to the Lord in this moment, of true repentance, in this moment of realizing what he has done with the adultery, with the murder, with the cover-up, with everything, as he is the king and the leader of his people. And so he wants to be sure of what he's saying. 
Three different ways he talks about his sin. Three different ways he talks about his forgiveness that he's crying out and begging God to do. In his first section, I really, I think God's mercy moves believers to craft. That's what we see in this first section. That it's his mercy. That's what moves us to cry out to him. It's his nature. It's who he is. It's not necessarily what we've done or who we are, but David, if you look at this, he says, because of your compassion, your tender mercies, your loyal love, your hesed love, this covenant relationship, I'm going to cry out to you, and he's moved to do that. And a question for us is, do we do that? Do we cry out because of who God is? Not because of anything about us, but do we truly cry out to him because of who he is? And as we were going to walk through this, there's the next three sections. There's kind of a section of, of him confessing what's going on and then him being forgiven and being restored and then finally him being restored back into worship and into service. Read with me in 3 through 6. It says, For I am aware of my rebellious acts. I am forever conscious of my sin against you. You above all I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. So you are just when you confront me. You are right when you condemn me. Look, I was guilty of sin from birth. A sinner the moment my mother conceived me. Look, you desire integrity in the inner man. You want me to possess wisdom. In this first part, we see him talking about acknowledging and being aware. He says, I'm aware of my rebellious acts. Once again, this idea of, of transgression, sin upon sin. He says, I'm aware. David is acknowledging his sin. But then he goes on, he says, I am forever conscious of my sin. Of the fact that I missed the mark. I am conscious of that. And here, it truly, it really means not just aware, but he is painfully aware. And, and he is moving and doing something about it. So he is painfully aware of his sin. And he says, I will forever be painfully aware of what I've done. And this next line, I really think, is one of the most important parts in this section where he is confessing about his sin. He says, against you, you above all, I have sinned. You know, David moves from thinking about what he did to Bathsheba, which is horrible, and then what he did to Uriah to cover it up, which was horrible. But he realizes that the worst thing that he did was that he sinned against his heavenly father. That he sinned against the God who loved him, who blessed him, who chose him to be the king, who is protected, who's done everything for him. He says, I've sinned against you. And he says, and I have done what is evil in your sight. So now we've moved even beyond this idea of acknowledging, being aware, painfully aware. But now he says, I've done what is evil in your sight. This word, I mean, literally, it means intentional harm. Intentional immorality intended to harm somebody or something. And so now he's moved all the way to this place as he is confessing 
and saying, I'm aware of what I've done. It's painful because I know what I've done. And worst of all, not only did I do it against people that I love and that I know, but I've done it against you. And it was intentional and it was wicked. I have done what is evil in your sight. And as he continues on to talk about his sin, he says, so you are just when you confront me. You are right when you condemn me. You see, David knows. David understands what's going on here. David knows that he has wronged God and that he has sinned against God and he has committed intentional, wicked things. And he says, you're right. You're just. That's what I deserve. I deserve to be condemned. You're right to confront me. I'm in the wrong here. He understands his proper place with God. And he knows, because as we think back to 2 Samuel, because of what he's done and the acts that he's committed, he knows that God has every right to condemn him, to confront him, because God is just and he is good. And in a sense, this is an idea of him really submitting and surrendering back to the Lord and acknowledging God's proper place in his proper place. And then he goes on to say, look, I was guilty of sin from birth, a sinner the moment my mother conceived me. Look, you desire integrity in the inner man. You want me to possess wisdom. See, David knows as he recounts this, and this is not a, hey, I'm making an excuse. You know, I was sinned from birth. It's not my fault. That's not what he's doing here. He's just acknowledging once again that I sinned because I'm a sinner. He sinned because he was a sinner because he knows of his depravity, his original sin, which we all possess. And he understands that, that apart from the goodness of God, apart from the grace of God and the mercies of God, when he's doing life on his own, when he's making his own decisions, he knows that he is a sinner. And that is why he sinned. And that's why he made these choices. And he goes on to share more truth. He goes, look, you desire integrity in the inner man. This idea of being morally upright, honest, truthful. He goes, that's what you, that's what you desire. From, from the day I was conceived, that's what you desired in me. And that's the same thing with you and I. God desires you and I to live a life of integrity, to chase after him, to have that right relationship. And David is making all these things known in this section as he is confessing and petitioning God for forgiveness as he talks about his sin, as he talks about the way that he has turned against and the evil he has done, and even just saying, look, I've been this way since I was born. I understand that. I know that. It's not an excuse. But I, apart from you, I will not live a life of integrity in the inner places, in the heart, and in the soul. See, God's holiness exposes our sin. We see it here in this psalm. It is the goodness of God. It is God's character, his nature, and his holiness that exposes our wrongdoing. Isn't it interesting that David didn't write this psalm before he was confronted by Nathan. And that's probably a whole other sermon too. But aren't we similar to that? I mean, we don't 
do things in secret and then confess it to everyone. We tend to hide. We tend to cover up. We tend to take those things and downplay them and not really look at us. Oh, okay. But the truth is, eventually, God's holiness is going to expose those things. Through the prophet Nathan, God exposed that. And sometimes it, we need that. We need things to be exposed in our life so that we truly look at sin for what it is. Because I, I wonder, do we really treat sin like David did in this psalm? Does it drive us to our knees? Does it drive us to places in our life where we go, I understand what I did. I understand how wrong it was. And I understand I did it against you and it was evil in your sight. You know, I think in this psalm, David really understood the depths of his depravity and the depths of his choices. And it's God's holiness that exposes that. And as we continue to move through this, we're going to move into a section now where David is asking and pleading for forgiveness and petitioning the Lord. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be pure. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Grant me the ultimate joy of being forgiven. May the bones you crush rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Wipe away my guilt. Create for me a pure heart, O God. Renew a resolute spirit within me. Do not reject me. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Let me again experience the joy of deliverance. Sustain me by giving me the desire to obey. Again, here's these three words, and he's using them again, kind of in a a different order. It was wash or wipe, wash, cleanse. Now it's cleanse, wash, wipe. But he says, cleanse me, this idea of and the hyssop of a ritual, the purity ritual. He's not literally talking about that, but he's talking about the, the being made pure through the cleansing that only comes from the Lord. And then he says, wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Don't you love that imagery? Not just white as snow, but I will be whiter. He knows He understands who God is and how good he is and how righteous he is and how perfect he is and how holy he is. And he says, if you wash me, I will be more brilliant than snow. I love what he says here. Grant me the ultimate joy of being forgiven. Grant me the ultimate joy. He wants to experience the joy of salvation, the joy of being forgiven, the joy of the relationship being restored back to where it was supposed to be. And he says, may the bones you crush rejoice. And these, this isn't an actual physical crushing, but as some of the commentators talk about, it's more about what's inside the rib cage, the heart, the soul. David is in a, a spiritual depression, if you will, because of what's happened as he's been driven to his knees in repentance he realizes that he has severed this relationship between he and his heavenly father. And he is in a spiritual depression. And he says, may the bones you crushed rejoice. He wants to have the joy that he once had. He wants to worship in the holy place. He wants to be restored and redeemed back to that right relationship. He says, hide your face from my sins. He didn't want God to look on his sin anymore 
And then finally says, wipe away, blot out all my guilt. Not just my sin, but the, the guilt that I feel. The shame that comes from the sin. He doesn't want to experience that anymore. He wants that to be blotted out. And as I said earlier, scraped clean like a new slate where he doesn't feel or experience that anymore. And it's interesting because this first half, he's talking about take these things away from me. Cleanse me, wash me, wipe me. Wipe away all my guilt. And then he goes on and now he starts talking about things that he wants God to do for him. Create for me a pure heart, O God. Renew a resolute or a right spirit within me. So now he's saying, God, create new things. Make things new. Just as we enter into a relationship with Jesus, we are made new. And David knows that. And so now he starts using this language of creation. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And David knows what God really desires. We'll see that in a minute. But he says, create in me a pure heart. Renew a right spirit within me. So now we're looking at this idea of renewal and restoration and being made new. And then he says, do not reject me. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Because he knows what happened to Saul. In the Old Testament, the spirit was temporary. God would give the spirit, take the spirit. And it was taken away from Saul at the end of Saul's life. And David knows this. He knows the stakes that are going on here. Because he's been chosen to be the leader and to be the king. But he's begging God, please leave your spirit with me. Make me new. Renew my spirit. Create in me a pure heart. And don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. And then again, he says, let me again experience the joy of your deliverance. Because David knows that he was chasing all these idols. He was chasing the pleasure And then trying to cover it up and the power and the prestige and his own reputation. But he realizes that the reputation that he put on the line was God's. And so he says, God, let me again experience the joy of your deliverance. Sustain me by giving me the desire to obey. He's begging God. I've confessed my sin. Take these things away. Now give me these things. Give me the heart to obey as I move forward. Give me the heart to live the upright life that you've called me to. God's grace completely restores. We see this in David's life. There were consequences. If you read on in 2 Samuel, the son that was actually born, God said, I'm going to take his life, and he died. But then eventually, they had Solomon, who would precede him. There are consequences, but God's grace completely restores. David is completely restored back to that right relationship. He continues to lead his kingdom. In fact, we know him as a man after God's own heart, don't we? Even when we see what he's done, even when we see the wickedness that he knows that he did, we see that God completely restores through his grace. Man, I think about the gospel because we have that same restoration given to us. As a believer in Jesus Christ, when you believe and you trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross and the resurrection, we have that same restoration. 
We are made new. The old is gone and the new has come. And David experiences that and you and I are able to experience that as well as we respond to the gospel. As he moves on through this psalm, he then moves from the the crying out and the confession and the forgiveness and the restoration that comes from God into where God restores him back into that relationship and really into a place of worship and service. Look at this. He says, Then I will teach rebels your merciful ways, and sinners will turn to you. Rescue me from the guilt of murder, O God, the God who delivers me. Then my tongue will shout for joy because of your righteousness. O Lord, give me the words, then my mouth will praise you. So there's this sense of of being restored back into this right relationship and into a place of service and into a place of worship where he says, I will teach the sinners. I will teach them about your merciful ways. Isn't that incredible? So as David is forgiven, he's now also given a platform to share about the merciful ways of God. He says, deliver me, God, and my tongue will shout for joy because of your righteousness. Because of God's righteousness. Not anything David did, obviously, as we read the story and we understand what's going on in this psalm. Nothing about what David did, but everything about what God has done and is doing. Oh, Lord, give me the words, then my mouth will praise you. See, he desires to be in a right relationship with God, and he desires to worship. And that worship for us looks like singing. It looks like sharing the gospel. It looks like feeding someone who's hungry, clothing someone who's naked, housing someone who's home. It looks like a lot of things. But ultimately, we are restored back into this relationship, and we are given a platform and an opportunity to impact others Because of who God is, because of his character, because of his grace, because of his mercy. And then these next few verses, I think, are some of the most important ones in the entire psalm. David says, certainly you do not want a sacrifice or else I would offer it. You do not desire a burnt sacrifice. The sacrifice God desires is a humble spirit. Oh God, a humble spirit and repentant heart you will not reject. You see, David, he gets it. Back in verse 10, he talked about creating me a clean heart. A clean heart. And here he says, surely it's not a sacrifice. Because if it was a sacrifice, then that's what I would do. But he said, you desire, desire a humble spirit and a repentant heart. You see, God wants our hearts. God doesn't care about the things that we do. God doesn't look at your attendance on Sunday mornings or how much money you give or how many times you show up to serve somewhere. That's not what God wants. That's overflow of your life. That's the outpouring of your relationship with Jesus. But that is not what God desires. God wants our hearts. He wants our innermost being. He wants our souls. And David understands this as he says, that's what you desire. You desire a repentant heart. You desire someone who's going to be driven to their knees, confess sin, beg for forgiveness, 
enter back into worship, into that right relationship, and walk away and move away from that sin only through His power, through His grace, His mercy, and His Holy Spirit. Here's a couple of thoughts by Alan Ross on this. He says, true contrition, that is a spirit broken by guilt and remorse, is what God looks for in a penitent. A broken spirit that is broken because of the guilt and the remorse of your sin. That's what God's looking for, a contrite heart. A sacrifice has to be acceptable to God. And for the sinner, that can only mean a broken heart. I love this part. It says, try to bring gifts to God without surrendering to God is a fundamental misunderstanding. And church, that's what I think happens a lot of times. I think we live our lives in such a way where we go, you know what? I'm going to do all these things for God. That's what Christianity is, right? I show up, I do this, I do that. I check these boxes. I do all the right things. I follow all the right rules. And then God's pleased with me. No. David gets it. It's about our hearts. It's about what's going on in here. And have we surrendered? Do we really trust God enough to know that He is always better? That He is the best? You know, on the front end, we saw this. You know, David felt like sleeping with Bathsheba was going to give him happiness and joy and pleasure. But he realized it's only through the right relationship with God that he has any joy. As he tried to cover up what happened to protect his own reputation, his own little personal kingdom. But he realized that it's only the relationship with the God that matters. And with you and I, it's the same thing. With you and I, it's exactly the same thing. It's the relationship with Jesus Christ that matters. He is enough. We don't have to pursue all the lust of our eyes and the lust of our flesh and money and power and fame, fill in the blank. Whatever it is that you're holding as an idol, we don't have to pursue those things. Jesus is enough. Jesus will always be enough and Jesus will satisfy. And we see this in the psalm that David realized that those things were worthless. That the only thing that mattered was his relationship with the Almighty. And he finishes this psalm with a prayer. He says, Because you favor Zion, do what is good for her. Fortify the walls of Jerusalem. Then we will accept the proper sacrifices, burnt sacrifices, whole offerings. Then bulls will be sacrificed on your altar. He finishes and says, Things will be put back in order. The things that were chaos because of my sin because of my lack of leadership, as I failed, those things will be made right. Folks, it's God's worth that compels you and I to worship Him. It is His worth. He is worthy for us to come in here and sing praises and lift our hands. He is worthy to go out and to share the gospel whether it's across the table or across the street or across the world. He is worthy for us to worship Him. 
to be in that relationship. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we are able to do that. It's only because of who God is that we are able to be back into that right relationship, worshiping and serving our God and our King. God's character calls us to leave our sin and receive His restoration. If you're just, if you're just playing church and you're coming in and going out, that's not what God desires. Folks, we've got to be drawn in because of who He is to walk through this process that we've seen in Psalm 51 of confession and forgiveness and true repentance to be brought back into a place to where we can worship our God and our King. It's Him who calls us to leave our sin. And it's only Him and through Jesus Christ that we receive restoration. A couple next steps. Spend some time with the Lord in confession and repentance. Spend some time in this psalm this week. Walk back through this. Reflect on your own life. Think about things that have have gone on. And spend some real time in confession and repentance. And then it says, share about your time with a trusted friend. You know, there's, I don't know what it is, but there's something about sharing things with another believer. As you've confessed as you've asked for forgiveness, as you've dealt with some things and done your business with God, to then go to a believer and to talk about it and to pray for one another. There's some incredible things that God does in your heart and your mind to allow you to then walk in freedom and not in oppression. To walk free from sin and not live under the guilt and the remorse of sin or the guilt and the shame of sin.